0: Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, just last week, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. You can find the 15-minute introductory episode I recorded and posted as episode number 82 on the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. As I've observed the awesome efforts around me of healthcare systems and physicians and nurses and PAs and med techs and staff and administrators and researchers, I felt compelled to contribute to use my podcast platform to shed light on how this pandemic is accelerating the reframing of healthcare. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing healthcare leaders and entrepreneurs to ask two specific questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare? And How will COVID-19 reframe healthcare in America for years to come? The situation is changing daily. So in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. And again, you can find all of these episodes under Recreating a New Healthcare. These are unprecedented times. So I hope you find valuable information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to these experts and entrepreneurs share how they are adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. In this particular episode, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Eric Vanderlip, the Chief Medical Officer of ZoomCare. Dr. Vanderlip is a remarkable physician whose career I've been tracking for some time. Now, ZoomCare is a pioneering healthcare company based in the Pacific Northwest, which of course is where the first cases of coronavirus 2 infection were identified in the U.S. It's also currently one of the epicenters of the epidemic in the U.S. ZoomCare's long-standing mission is to create an innovative, patient-empowered, on-demand health ecosystem for the 21st century. At ZoomCare, Dr. Vanderlip and his colleagues are integrating behavioral health, urgent care, primary care, telemedicine, and specialty care services that utilize advanced chronic care models to engage patients and promote health behavior change. Dr. Vanderlip was formerly the George Kaiser Foundation Endowed Chair in Psychiatry and then an assistant professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Medical Informatics, at the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine. He's board certified in both family medicine and psychiatry. He also has a master's degree in public health and health services research from the University of Washington in Seattle. His area of specialty is in chronic care of medically and psychiatrically complex individuals. I am so excited to share this interview. So without further ado, Dr. Eric Vanderlip, the Chief Medical Officer of ZoomCare. Eric, I uh, just want to welcome you to Creating a New Healthcare. You and I have had a longstanding relationship and uh, just have so much respect and admiration for you. And in fact, uh, we had actually recorded a podcast interview just a few weeks ago prior to the whole COVID 19 pandemic. And so I wanted to do a mini series, a limited series focused on how COVID 19 is reframing healthcare in America. And uh, one of the first people I thought to speak with about this was you. So I just want to say welcome. And maybe you could just uh, give a introduction to yourself and an introduction to care and where you are the chief medical officer.
1: Thank you for the kind words. It's really a delight to be back with you uh, this morning. Uh, I am uh, the chief medical officer of Zoom Care, which is an on-demand uh, healthcare system in the Pacific Northwest. It's multidisciplinary, uh, primarily ambulatory care and an emergency room alternative uh, system, technologically infused, focused at uh, primarily the millennial population or millennials at heart who want to be in control of their healthcare. My background is a family physician and psychiatrist. I did a dual training program in family medicine and psychiatry and then did a master's in public health and health services research, uh, blending behavioral health and primary care services at the University of Washington. I've been here at Zoom for about three years uh, in the role as chief medical officer for about a year, just over a year now. Yeah, the last time we talked, Zev, uh, we were... You know, COVID-19 seemed like a far off uh, thing that may threaten our system, but I don't think any of us predicted uh, the tsunami that would be coming with this and uh, the the radical changes it's forced us into to uh, accommodate the need for delivering safe, effective care.
0: Just to bring this point home and make it very personal, and I have you on, on video here as we're recording this. So today is Wednesday, March 25th, I believe, right? Important and it's challenging to keep the day straight. But here I am. I'm working from home uh, because I work for Atrium Healthcare, and like many other healthcare systems, essentially all non-patient-facing personnel have been asked to work from home. And so that's what I'm doing. And you apparently look like you're in a hotel room and working from there. So it has gotten very, very real, very personal. It's transformed our lives, which is one of the reasons, which actually is the reason I really want to talk to you. I, I see you smiling. Do you want to say something about how this has impacted you personally? I'm just, I think there's, there's something about that that's really true for all of us.
1: We were working from home. Zoom is working from home now, except for clinical staff who are in and for essential operations at our headquarters, which we call Basecamp. We have our pharmacy and lab team still coming in um, to process, and uh, we have a a centralized pharmacy that distributes by mail direct-to-person's homes. Um, So that's been extremely helpful in the midst of this. Uh, But I was working from home, but we actually, um, I've come up to uh, the hot zone of sorts in Seattle, Washington, with my colleague who's VP of our ancillary services, because we've been able in about a week to pull together a, a pilot validation trial of sample home testing and self-sampling of COVID-19. We've partnered with a lab and a, a school of public health to gather data on participants who are willing to enroll and deliver samples themselves as they pull up and we obtain a healthcare worker a nasopharyngeal specimen to compare to. Our hope is that we can successfully and in partnership with the FDA (laughs) approve a a self-sampling technique and a kit to be delivered to people's homes. And so I'm helping to guide that trial. It's not really a public trial. It's really more like a validation study of these self-sampling techniques. We came up on Sunday. We got a Suburban. It looks like the FBI. We have test kits and uh personal protective equipment, and myself and my colleague and uh, several Zoom staff are conducting drive-up testing um, and working to enroll participants in this validation.
0: So these are swabs, nasopharyngeal swabs. It's a test for COVID-19 for the coronavirus, novel coronavirus. Are you going to people's homes and handing them these kits and then picking them up?
1: You know, the gold standard for uh, testing for COVID-19 is a nasopharyngeal sample, which is difficult, I think, for people to obtain on their own. They really get the swab back far enough, and most of the time it's healthcare worker obtained, and that has obvious limitations. In addition to PPE, it's just not very very zoomy. Um, We recognized several weeks ago that, as many other systems and everybody else pretty much has, that a, a home testing solution is the obvious answer to testing, it limits PPE burn, it limits exposure to healthcare workers, And it meets convenience standards. I mean, it's just uh, perfectly matched for what our role is in the healthcare world in terms of delivering care on people's terms where they're at. It also saves exposure. In addition to that, you know, there's a huge backlog in swabs, pharyngeal swabs and viral transport media and universal transport media, which has been a big, there's been a just run on the bank for that. And so, we partnered with a molecular laboratory that uh, specializes in direct-to-consumer test kits and has a high-throughput um, molecular PCR-based testing. And they were also looking to similarly develop a home testing solution. But instead of using nasopharyngeal swabs, we wanted to look at oral pharyngeal swabs, which are easier to self administer And compare it to salivary samples because we feel like there's a high chance that a salivary sample could be just as good, if not even better, than a nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal sample and easily self-collected.
0: And shelf-stable. And if your trial is successful, what is the Zumi, to use your terminology, what is the Zumi solution? What will it look like? What will people be doing? How will this be distributed?
1: A couple of things. If it's successful, we've been partnering with the academic partnership is wanted to remain silent at this point in time. They've been advising and consulting with us free of charge. Every, all parties are doing this free of charge. And yet they'll have uh, access to de-identified uh, validation pilot data with the potential to move towards publication of the results and uh, hopefully FDA authorization. Once we have that, we're, you know, there's, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the self-testing back and forths, uh, several companies, NERCS and uh, Everlywell, et cetera, announced self-testing pilots or self-testing opportunities through CLIA-approved high-complexity laboratories that the FDA came back and said, wait, 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 we don't approve self-testing, and there's just this kerfuffle back and forth in the last few days. Uh, and so we're we're really trying to go the the right route of working with our public health colleagues, conserving valuable public health resources. These nasopharyngeal swabs, for instance, and validate it in a good way and make it publicly available if possible. And so, yeah, if it's if it's approved, um, if we have a clear go ahead, which we're hoping would come in a matter of days, if it works, um, then. Then the obvious is that we would, we would use our chat care services, which is how we're identifying and uh, en- enrolling persons or identifying persons eligible for testing currently, which is a virtual synchronous text-based messaging platform for uh, delivering care and guidance. We'd use that. We'd order a test. The test would be potentially couriered out to somebody's house or where they are and then couriered back to the lab. We could potentially even mail the test back and forth, and it should be shelf stable The lab has pretty good experience in working with salivary samples for other PCR-based testing mechanisms. So we're pretty hopeful that we could uh, get it up and going and start delivering home testing kits directly to people's doors as soon as possible. We wish we could do
0: this yesterday. Right. And would these be, I'm sorry, would these be salivary samples or would these be pharyngeal culture samples? It kind of all depends on
1: the validation.
0: So Zoom care has been sort of like you said, it's been a urgent care slash primary care rapidly iterating and evolving entity. It's really, really exciting to see where it started and see how it's evolved. Now, given what's happening with COVID nineteen, how have you changed currently your way of delivering healthcare at Zoom care?
1: Um, well, in a matter of uh days, we only had our chat care services available in, in Oregon um at the beginning of this, in part because of regulatory standards and establishment of telemedicine standards of care with doctor-patient relationships, et cetera. We had a lot of just legalese and back-end stuff to work through with that. But in a matter of Days, we were able to push it forward faster, make compromises, uh, deliver our chat care services free of charge to persons for COVID-related concerns um, in Washington, and more broadly, uh, in the state of Washington, virtually, that was the first thing we did. We, uh, in another couple of days, move forward with all telephonic communication. So in order to schedule a Zoom care visit now, um, you can schedule a phone visit with our providers. And then if you need to be seen in person for a number of different reasons, we'll move forward with seeing you in person safely. We've got enough PPE on hand, personal protective equipment on hand to continue to see people and protect our staff, but it's uh, challenged our systems a lot. We had uh, video visits on the roadmap for implementation this year, and we've pulled that forward dramatically. We're hoping to have video visits up and running by next week on demand, uh, leveraging our our staff across both Oregon and Washington to be able to meet the needs of the communities we serve. So it's pulled forward a lot of the remote and, and telemedicine things that were already on our roadmap. And I think it's good. Our teams have just been incredible. And we have a really uh, tightly orchestrated clinical team that has pulled off some significant change and uh, weathered the storm pretty well so far.
0: You were, though, already offering these chat care visits and maybe as well as phone call visits. Sounds like those are accelerating. What percentage were virtual in terms of either phone call or chat before? And at this moment in time, what percent are virtual right now?
1: Um it's all shifting but I'd say before it was around uh ah, 10% of our volume and now it probably flipped
0: <laughs> really so only about 10% of the visits you have are in person at this point
1: probably um you know I mean our overall visit volume has dropped quite a bit because of social distancing standards and stay at home mandates uh in both markets that we're serving and that's as it should you know we're we're trying to you know limit exposure to staff and patients and so yeah that's as it should
0: yeah Tell me about the chat care. What, what is that?
1: Well, uh, if you go to Zoom, ZoomCare.com or on your app, uh, it can, you can just chat with a doctor now. It puts you into a queue. And then uh, it's like eye messaging or text messaging back and forth with a provider. We've been doing that for a long time, for three or four years now. And so we have a lot of experience with the workflows and the scope of care there and what's safe and what's not safe. And, and we've added uh, photos to the chat platform um, so that you can upload photos of your laceration or rash or uh, even your prescription and uh, other things so that we can see it.
0: That's so amazing. So you've been doing that for how long? Since 2016. Wow. Over three years. Now, do I need a primary care number one and do I have to schedule this chat if my doctor is seeing someone? How does that work? Is it immediate on demand or...
1: Yeah, it's all on demand. We don't have one-on-one relationships at Zoom um, with people per se. If you if you want to try and find the same person to see again at Zoom, you can, but we, we offer a team-based solution to primary care where you can get any Zoom doc, and Zoom is kind of your primary care doc. So you can get them on demand and get your question answered and problem solved, um, hopefully as soon as and close to when you need it as possible.
0: And the way that gets paid for is... Uh, Is this a subscription model or, I mean, for me to have access to that chat 24-7?
1: Nope. There's a global period after somebody's seen for a Zoom Care visit in which chat is waived. We have waived all charges with regards to COVID consultations. And uh, for everything else, if you're starting, if you've got a new problem um, that we haven't seen you for in the last seven days or you've got questions, then it's a $25 cash pay for a chat care encounter.
0: Okay. So if I've seen a Zoom care provider, there's this window around that visit or after that visit that I can just use this chat care for free.
1: Follow-up questions, don't know how to interpret things. Yes, and it's all free. That's part of like, you know, a global period for most um most systems after an in-person visit for telemedicine. But we do that anyway. We find it useful, particularly for follow-up care.
0: Mm-hmm. And otherwise, if it's not in that window, then and it's just $25 that I pay for the, which is super reasonable.
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, in short order, the subscription model hasn't uh, flown very well with other systems that have really tried to do that direct to consumer. Um, I think it's still an opportunity out there. We're exploring some other revenue opportunities that would fold chat care into somebody's uh, membership, but we're still working through the details of those. Um, But it's obviously ripe for something like that.
0: No, no, it's it's super. I I just, again, I think your model is so brilliant, and I wish we could dive into a bit more. Let me ask you this. How do you think COVID-19 is going to reframe, to transform and change permanently healthcare delivery in America in the future?
1: Well, I mean, the obvious answer is it'll be a, a new focus on an opportunity for telemedicine. A lot of people have been talking about this, but I think that I think the public has been wary to adopt telemedicine in part because they didn't know what could be accomplished on uh, telemedicine platforms. Uh, The scope of care, is it really as good? I think there's just been trepidation around that. I think the the public demand for telemedicine platforms will increase um, quite a bit. I also think the regulatory and um, licensure barriers to enacting telemedicine between states are dropping dramatically with COVID. You know, in the past week or so, we've been partnering with the Washington Department of Health, the Oregon Medical Board, uh, Washington Medical Commission, to really allow our providers who are licensed just in Oregon, for instance, to provide care to persons in Washington and vice versa. We're seeing those walls that were once up, barriers, the licensure, just, just crumble. I mean, as it should. In an emergency situation, we've got to be able to get care into these communities. And the if you're in good standing with another state, we're just finding that those licensure barriers are are dropping. And I think... I'm hopeful that through this, we'll discover that, oh, a clinician from Oregon, because Zoom has known this for a while. We've been straddling the, the divide between two markets, Oregon and Washington, for years. And we know what makes a good clinician, and it's not crossing the state boundary between Oregon and Washington. So we've known this, and we've encountered these barriers in rolling up our chat care platform in other places. And so we're I'm thinking that there will be greater interstate compacts for telemedicine, um, greater acknowledgement of provider licensure federally, I hope. um, And some of the walls that have been built up around that, uh, I hope, will be improved. Also, I think payers are dropping their their parity walls around telemedicine. Um, that is limited adoption in some instances. And then finally, I'm hoping that some regulatory statutes um, around establishing the doctor-patient relationship. What does that mean? How is it really established? Does, does it have to be with face-to-face visits? Can it be through an alternative mechanism, two-factor authentication, something like that? I'm hoping all of those will, will get at the end of this and think, oh, you know, it actually is probably okay. Here's how we could make it work going forward. After we have this emergency kind of crisis, it's going to force our hand into some of these things.
0: What do you think about the move? And maybe this is part and parcel of your response, the move to uh, care being delivered much more at home than in in offices. Do you see that home is becoming the point of care?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, if we if we are able to really validate self sampling methods uh, for this and develop the infrastructure to send persons testing apparatuses in their home, Boy, it opens up a whole new level of diagnosis and treatment and scope um, for telemedicine services. And it would be hard once that cat's out of the bag to go back and say, well, why couldn't we do this for flu? Or why couldn't we do this for uh, rapid strep, et cetera, et cetera?
0: I asked you for numbers before. What do you think the percentage of visits of the future being virtual? Take a guess.
1: Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I've I've said all this stuff and I I still think at the end of this, people are going to want to talk, you know, in person. I think actually, you know, I, I think actually it will depend on the nature of the condition and the problem to be solved. And the closer you are to an acute, episodic or urgent or the perception of an acute, episodic or urgent need, the higher the likelihood somebody's just wanna, gonna wanna get in because there's a greater variability in the in the clinical tools that you'll need, either a physical exam, point of care testing, that won't be validated yet via virtual scope. And the further you get from that, chronic illnesses that are well-managed and well-controlled, the less somebody's gonna wanna come in uh, for something just not convenient. They don't wanna schlep themselves into a, a clinic when they know what they need for their asthma management. Um, so, I think there' will be greater adoption, especially around chronic disease.
0: That's great. Thank you for that. That was very, very helpful. The final thing I just want to ask you in particular, it seems to me we've been so focused and and rightly so absolutely so on the medical clinical aspects of covid nineteen on making sure we're getting testing and treatments and opening up hospital beds and making sure the shift to virtual versus having people come in, all the things that we should be doing at this moment in time and at the same time with the lockdowns and social distancing and sheltering in place there is an impact i believe that's happening here that's hidden which is a profoundly negative impact on the social determinants of health so we're talking about food insecurity uh, income jobs education social isolation depression uh, loneliness you know just having basic supplies in the house all those social determinants which we know are the major determinant of Health and, and health outcomes and healthcare utilization, and what concerns me, and I haven't heard uh, really much a discussion on this, uh, if any at all, is that we could tolerate that for a certain amount of time. We knew this the social determinants were already bad, and there was significant uh, impact across the country. But now, uh, with what's happening, it's really multiple fold worse. And I suspect if this continues for another three, four, six weeks that we will begin to see what, what I'm calling almost the second wave of the tsunami, which is uh, all the folks that have been cooped up at home, like you mentioned, with chronic disease, who aren't getting medications, who aren't getting the right treatment, who are socially isolated, depressed, lonely, without food and toiletries – I think what we're going to see is a wave of people heading to the EDs and hospitalizations. And so, you know, I'm just curious, you know, again, you're a psychiatrist as well as a medical doctor and internist. What do you think about the psychosocial impact of what's happening around us from a patient care, healthcare perspective?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question. And I think uh, the prognosis is not great. I think this coronavirus is pointing out all the gaps in our current public health infrastructure um, and delivery of services and and just cracks in our our society and gaps in those who have and those who have not. It's just gonna further highlight those divides and populations on the fringe who don't have a lot of social capital and don't have uh, the economic or other resources to continue to be able to take care of themselves are gonna be really challenged to deal with this, uh, whether or not they get coronavirus. I think uh, that's part of the reason why we've, we've got to move forward as rapidly as possible with a uh, broad scale delivery of virtual health services so that people continue to get access to the basics to prevent unnecessary ED utilization for chronic illnesses that decompensate. I mean, we basically have all hands on deck to do that right now. And at the same time, you know, this is something with the social determinants of health that I know how important those are, especially for managing chronic illness. But the healthcare system cannot fix housing too, and it cannot fix education, and it cannot fix transportation, and it cannot fix food insecurity and the market price of food and and subsidies for high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> And so, it's going to take an all-in effort from multiple different aspects of the service delivery system, even beyond healthcare, to recognize the needs of uh, vulnerable populations and uh, work to get them access to what they need beyond just healthcare. But I think healthcare can also, you know, lead lead the way with a lot of that. And there's a great Rudolph Virchow. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but he's a Potter familius of uh, social medicine. And to paraphrase, has this quote that kind of says, as goes healthcare services, so does the body politic, meaning the delivery, science and delivery of healthcare services can show the light for how the rest of public services can be administered. So here we are, healthcare is going virtual. We're trying to work to identify those most in need who aren't managing things well. Those basic frameworks and rules of thumb for operations and delivery and payment of services can be leveraged into other systems as well, housing education, transportation, et cetera. So those are some of my basic thoughts.
0: Your response is brilliant. Eric, I just want to say thank you so much for what you're doing and what ZoomCare is doing. And just, again, always to express my gratitude to providers across the country who are at the front line and the support staff and administrators who are really putting themselves on the line in terms of uh, taking care of people in our communities right now. Um, this has been super, super helpful, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Eric.
1: Thanks, Ev. Um Be well. You too. Wash your hands.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, that was the interview recorded last week with Dr. Eric Vanderlip, the Chief Medical Officer of ZoomCare. I hope you've benefited from this podcast episode. My goal is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. You know, in these times, especially I and we, truly appreciate you for what you do and we recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our country. My friends and colleagues, please take care of yourself and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. Also, please reach out to me on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm so interested in your thoughts and your suggestions and I'm so interested in what you all are seeing and doing to create a new healthcare, a more humanistic healthcare. This is Zev Newworth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.